let's get into our lesson uh, for today. We're, we're continuing in Genesis 19, kind of working through the rest of the, sor- of the story, so to speak, in terms of the outcome uh, it, at a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. So what I did was I included uh, verses uh, 4, to, 4 to 7 to give a little sense of context. So, so basically what's happening is the Lord and the two angels have gone down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and they they full well know exactly what's waiting for them. And in fact, their intent and purpose of going there is to get Lot and his family out of there because the fate has already been sealed in terms of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so one of the things that, that I wanted to make sure that we understood with respect to this is that it shows up in verse 4, where this chaotic mob sort of uh, situation arises when this mob of people come to Lot's door of his house and they are demanding that Lot turn over the uh, Lord and two angels, these visitors who have come, turn them over to them. And so here's where it picks up in verse 4. It says, before they, that's the the Lord and, and the two angels, Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind them and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. So the note that I have there is significant. Moses' mention of the mob includes both young and old. That is telling. The Sodomites were indoctrinating their children and youth in the beliefs and behaviors of homosexual living. This suggested that there was a long-standing cultural practice identifying this as normal Sodomite living. So the the significance of it for me as I'm looking at it is, is is the mention of young and old. I mean, it's one thing if you have adults who say, well, we're just going to live our lives and do what we want. Okay, I get that. But when you start to lead children and youth down that same path, and then you're saying to them that this is what normal is. This is what um, a, a, they wouldn't have said God-pleasing because they didn't believe in God. They believed in their idols. But when, when you start taking children down that path, then that's what has a longer intergenerational effect on in terms of a nation, in terms of a society, in terms of a culture. So that is part of the story. See, again, I, I mentioned this last week, is that sometimes when we look at um, the accounts in the scriptures of God exercising his wrath on a, a nation or a society, we're, we're getting the one-shot view of it. Okay, we're getting... We're getting the view of the story at the end of the story. We don't. We're not really given the long-standing history or the long-standing practice of that society. Well, God has been seeing this the whole the whole time, and He's been watching it, and He keeps hoping, as God always does, that they would repent and that they would turn back away from the evil ways, which they're not doing. And the in- indication of that is is that. Um, they're taking the children and youth down that path as well. So God says what? He says, enough is enough. They're not going to repent. They have no intent of repenting. Clearly, 
because this is the direction that they're taking. Okay, so now we're going to pick it up in uh, verse 8, where, where Lot, this is not his most shining moment. <laughs> and, you know, the thing is, this will come back to bite him as it always does whenever we mess around with what's right and wrong and go down the path of wrong in the, in the idea of that, well, somehow I got to get out of this situation. Somehow I got to find a way to reason with people. You can't reason with evil. And you can't reason with evil when evil is in a heightened mob sort of uh, mentality. Okay, so here we go. Verse 8. And by the way, the scriptures do not whitewash any of this. Have you noticed that? The Bible, some of this stuff is kind of embarrassing, frankly, but, but you think, how could a believer be like this? How can a believer be like this? Well, guess what? We're all believers, and we've had our moments, have we not? All right, here we go. So Lot, Lot says, look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. And you can do what you like with them, but don't do anything to these men, for, I, for they have come under the protection of my roof. In the span of two minutes, he is both a hero and a coward, right? What, uh, what do you make of his intent? Did he have a good intent? Appeasement. Uh, no. no. Yeah. <laughs> and the daughters of Depends on whose point of view you're looking at here, right? Yeah. Weren't the daughters under the protection of his roof also? Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently not. Yeah. Okay. Could he have known that they wouldn't touch his daughters? Could he have what? Could he have known because of their sexual <laughs> Uh. You're trying to be so nice to Lot in this moment. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't have a lot of compassion for him, but, you know, I think as a dad, there's been times when I thought something was a good idea at the time, and then later I go, well, I don't know even what I was thinking in that moment. It's kind of like he's lost his mind there. <laughs> but one of the things that's significant here, uh, one of the commentaries that I used pointed this out, is that the law of hospitality to strangers was one of the signs of a civilized society. So when that went down the tubes, you see, then not only do we have the rampant, you know, sexual stuff going on, but now we have a complete breakdown of society that it was as if in that moment, um, the only thing that matters is what the mob wanted. It was not, there was no, to the rule of law or whatever, you know, consideration of others, all that kind of thing, completely out the window, okay? Well, let's see what happens. Whew. <laughs> Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We will treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. So they knew that Lot had come from, he was like not born there. Okay, isn't that kind of what people say? Well, you're not from around here. Isn't that what they say, right? How many of you, by the way, are not from around here? There's quite a few of us. Yeah, there you go. That is a good lesson. And don't be quick to try to change things, right? That's, that's kind of how that works. 
But what do you make of where they say now he wants to play the judge? What does that indicate about their consciences in that moment? They realize what? They knew. Oh, yeah, they knew. See, this was, they couldn't just say, well, you know what? That's the way we've all been raised, and we've just been that way our whole lives, and that we don't have any choice. They knew exactly what they were doing in terms of the right and wrongness of it. All right? So when when Lot tries to sort of uh, placate them in some way, you know, offering the daughters terrible choice, but but when he tries to do that, then that enrages them even more and they say, not only are we going to treat them bad, but we're going to turn, we're going to really make it bad for you. Okay? So let's see what happens. Verse 10. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. You can just imagine he's, he's talking to him and the door opens and whoa, like that. You know, that's, that is almost, this is chaos. Okay? This is chaos. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, so there's that reference again, with blindness so that they could not find the door. I love that part. I mean, can you imagine that? You're standing in front of the door and all of a sudden you can't find the door. Yeah. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anybody else in the city that belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to what? Destroy. Yeah, the fate was sealed. It wasn't, it wasn't any going to be any uh, second, uh, second ch- uh, chance here. All right. Now, I, one of the challenges I, I left with you last week before we uh, stopped was uh, to think about what is the difference between what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah and God's a position toward Nineveh. Now, do you remember Nineveh? Okay, what? Where, where do we hear the most of Nineveh? What book of the Bible? Jonah. Jonah. Okay, remember Jonah. So Nineveh and Sodom were very similar in their idol worship and their sexual immorality and in just the terrible living that they were doing, all of which they thought was normal. But the way that God deals with Nineveh is different than the way that he deals with Sodom. So is God not being fair? Is God picking favorites? Is God saying, well, I like them better, so they get out, they get off the hook? What's the difference between Nineveh and Sodom? Repentance, they repented. They listened to Jonah and made him mad because he was there to see the show. Yeah. It didn't happen. Not Jonah's favorite best moment either. <laughs> you know, that happens to church workers sometimes, though, you know? You preach, 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 and you say, God is going to nail you, and then people go, yeah, we repent, and you're going, bummer. (laughs) I wanted to see a little fire and brimstone, you know? Yeah, so anyway, so that's the difference, right? Yeah. They believed in God. They turned from their evil ways. The king took off his robe and put on sackcloth, including the beasts, and they cried out to the Lord. That's the difference. So, Pastor, are you asking why didn't God give Sodom the chance to do what they were doing? Now, Chris, I'm not. <laughs> I'm asking you the question. <laughs> See, it, and again, what we're kind of left with is we're at the end of the story. Whereas the story of Jonah, we get to see he goes to Nineveh, and we don't, we're not aware of who went, okay, to Sodom. So there is a difference, I think, in terms of the attitude that they had towards sin 
And if the attitude that I have towards sin includes the idea that I'm going to repent of my sin, i.e. acknowledge that it's sin. I mean, clearly that was not going on in Sodom. And they were involving young and old in that in their sin. And then uh, turning from their evil ways. That's a, that's a phrase in the, in the book of Jonah, that they turn from their evil ways. So it's not just, oh, we're sorry, you know, we're sad about what we're doing. But literally, they, they tore down the altars and they said, we're going to worship God. That's the difference. So see what it tells you is that God is very interested in our turning back to him, regardless of the deep and dark and terrible road that maybe any of us have walked down. Or even if you haven't, you know, sin is sin, right? And sin separates us from God. And so God's desire is that in our sin, that we turn back to him and in faith, we trust and believe, and we have that gift of forgiveness. And then that is ours. And that's what empowers us then to change our evil ways. Yes. Okay, I'm probably going to repeat what you say because I don't think anybody but me heard you. Okay, is that okay if I do that? But he was, and that's why he proved that he saved people. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. The point that is made here to sort of reinforce that is it says God is merciful and so we think well who is he merciful to people that deserve it see well if that's the case we're all sunk every one of us because we think well we think we look at this and we go well sure glad I'm not a sodomite sure glad I'm not one of those those people right and that what we do we look at that and we say well you know we have certain categories of sin and there's acceptable sin, and then there's like, mm-hmm, not so good sin. And so we're thankful that we're not like those other sinners. I think Jesus told a parable about that, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So it's just re- remembering that we're all in that same boat. Yeah, the consequences of it might be dire for one person and for a society and for a family, etc., more so than somebody else. The consequences. But it doesn't change the fact that every single one of us is a sinner. And every single one of us needs that uh, forgiveness that God offers. So what is repentance? What does that mean to repent? To turn, right. What would motivate you to repent? Why do you repent? Oh, that's a good one. Guilt, yes. But what if you didn't feel guilt? Fear. Fear of? Or else. So doesn't that make repentance self-serving? I mean, the reason I'm doing it is because if I don't do it, mm, it gets worse for me. Isn't that self-serving? How in the world does that serve God then? There'll be an action. See, that, what's interesting about repent is that sometimes we turn it into a work and we say, well, if I repent, that's a good thing. And then here's all the good things that'll come from it if I do it. It's interesting that in the Gospels, the Gospels recognize repentance as an act of faith which actually means that God has already come to me and is working in my heart. And then out of that comes the desire to repent. And then when I repent, what happens is that God is saying, you're mine. You are mine. Right? That's what he's saying. Okay. And so that's the beauty of this is that repenting is not a work. What repentance is a response to what God has already done for us. It's a way of saying, yes, 
to it. And that was not happening here. We, we would assume, we don't know, but we would assume that, uh, that at some point, somebody was attempting to go to Sodom and Gomorrah and preach like, like Jonah did. But we have to kind of take our thoughts about that and sort of hope that was the case. Bob, any thoughts about that? No, basically you covered it. I just noticed that uh, when Lot went to his sons-in-laws yeah. and told them to repent, they didn't. That's what's coming next. Yeah, absolutely. He gave them an opportunity. Yeah, Lawrence. When I returned to the States from the Marshall Islands, uh-huh. I was in San Francisco and I went into the bus terminal and I went into the men's restroom. And this guy came into the restroom, proposition me, and I literally ran him out of the terminal. The last I saw him, he was looking at them down the street. <laughs> so maybe that's an example of resisting evil. Well, it w- it is. It's also resisting someone doing evil to us. We we are given the God-given uh, right to protect ourselves, and we have to do that. So good for you that, that uh, you were able to do that. Okay? All right, well, let's, go, let's look at verse 14 because it picks up the, the thought that Bob was uh, pointing out. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the man grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. Kind of a, you know, a little detail there that I didn't even think about was that when Lot offered his daughters, he's violating the marriage as well. Boy, that wouldn't have made the son-in-laws very happy about that, right? But the pledge means that they weren't, they were not married they were they were pledged, meaning they were married, but they weren't living together. That's what that meant, okay? And so he is sharing with them the opportunity to get away from the impending doom. Now, why do you think, and it doesn't say, so I'm just asking you to kind of think about it. Why do you think they resisted his warning and offer to go with them? Austin. Well, it says that they thought... Okay. But the way I the way I think they're just trying to get across is they thought that it was a joke. Yeah. Like God, it's just a joke. God wouldn't do that, right? He wouldn't do that. Yeah. Right. So they thought kind of like when they when the other men called him the judge. Yeah. Like you're just judging. Yes, that's right. They they thought it was a joke. They thought it was hilarious. The other reason is they're from there. Right? Who are who are they? See, what what is their origin? These guys that they were gonna marry from there, right? And because they're godless in the sense that they worshiped idols, why would they leave? Why would they take the word of their father-in-law, right? That's kind of interesting. Why would anybody take the word of their father-in-law? <laughs> I took the word of my father-in-law, let me tell you. We call, I called him Jethro. Do you know the story of Jethro and, and Moses? Do you know that story? 
You should look that up. That's a good story where Moses is like having such a hard time uh, shepherding the people and he's judging them. He's doing all this stuff. They're bringing all these needs to him. And Jethro comes to Moses and says, what you're trying to do is good, but you're doing it in a lousy way. That's not exactly what the Bible, but that's that's what it, very father-in-law-ish like, right? So that was Jethro. So so very often my father-in-law would come and visit us. And then he would have some of the same words for me. You know, he was a layman, but he was a PK like I was. So he sort of got the idea of uh, the uh, burdens of uh, ministry. So anyway, okay, where am I now? What am I talking about? Yeah, oh yeah. I, I think this also paints a picture of the web that we, we weave and get ourselves tangled in. Lot chose to live there. Yeah. And he raised his family there. That's correct. Yeah. And they were pledged to be married, despite what his actions were. Yeah. Say about that. <laughs> but he pledged his daughters to people who were ungodly. Yeah. So what would make him think that they would change their ways? You know what I mean? It's almost yeah. like as parents, we have to be careful where we raise our kids, how we raise our kids, mm-hmm. because of the influences that mm-hmm. are, they could have on our kids. And he was going to pledge them to marry ungodly men, yeah. apparently, because they chose not to take them seriously and not to come out of the city right. um, that they were in. So, watch who you marry. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. How about that one? Yeah. Yeah, Kent. He's not. And yet what? What does God do? Pulls him out. So we're going to see what is in God's mind here that is of great comfort to us, right? Because it would be very easy for any of us to sort of look around and go, hmm, I wonder in this room, who is less righteous than I am? Hmm. Wouldn't it? I mean, it would be the easiest thing in the world to do, right? And yet there's a, there's a clue in here. It'll come later where we're sort of, sort of cued in to God's thinking. Okay, can you hang on till I get to there? I love the tension. <laughs> I will not answer your question. All right. Okay, well, let's look at it. There's a couple of things here. First of all, the mention in verse, uh, at the end of verse 16, for the Lord was merciful to them. So this, so Kent, it gives you, there's a little clue there, okay? Why is God merciful to people that don't deserve it and in fact, at times, will reject it? Why is God merciful? What is in his right mind to be merciful? It's one thing to be merciful to people that really like you, right? Isn't it? That's the easiest thing in the world, be merciful to people that like you. If you like me, I'll be merciful to you. Okay. I mean, isn't that what it is? That's easy. But this is talking about people that make bad decisions in life. Okay. That, but that's sort of, it's a little bit, it's a little dicey because he's hoping, and yet on some level he already knows, right? You know. So why is God merciful? Yes. Love. Love, love is, he is love. I know, it doesn't make any sense, does it? To me, the best place to look at something like that is to understand God's love. Is when you think of your own child. You think of your own child, okay. Yeah. What would you do? You have a child sitting right here, so let's just think about that one. (laughs) Oh, okay. Oh, the other child. Oh, yeah, the one that's not here. Yeah, we know that one. Yeah, 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 we know that one. 
love for that child, but you're not going to reject the child because they did a terrible thing. I mean, that's yeah. that's the way I can look at it and understand someone. Yeah. How Jesus did what he did. To understand the love. That's totally it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think think of Jesus on the cross. What is he saying to God about, you know, you're you know, why are you forsaking me? He does say that part. Well, what else does he say with respect to everybody else that's there? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Right, and even if they did, forgive them anyway. That see, why does why is God merciful? Because that's His nature. Yeah. God loves His unconditionally, yeah. made in God's image. So unconditionally yeah. means He let His Son die on the cross. But just like when I was raising Pastor Welmer, <laughs> you were raising Pastor Welmer. I know. Yeah. We wondered about that. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, there is a difference parentally between loving your child and liking your child. Yes. Well, see, we loved your son. (laughs) And I won't say any more about that. And he loved us. The like thing, you know, so. All right. Yes. Oh, Lola. <coughs> it reminds me of the fact that God has a promise to these people. Yeah. That he's part of the plan. Ah. That's the other thing. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. See, he made that covenant promise. And, you know, you wonder sometimes if God makes a covenant promise and he goes, why did I do that? <laughs> you know? I mean, really? I mean... <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And then he remind, he has to remind himself, oh, but because that's the way I am, right? He has to keep doing that. So so that's probably right. Yeah, okay. Any other? We have some. Oh, yeah, Steve. You know, he had also made a covenant or a promise to Abraham saying, you know, when they were arguing about how many people were righteous mm-hmm. that he would not destroy. Yeah. But stopped at 10. Yeah. Okay. There's less than 10. And there was less than 10. And he made sure that those righteous, that he considered righteous, would be, they would take them out. So the thing we need to remember is that righteousness is not established by how good a life you live. The good life you live is reflective of the righteousness that you have. Do you see that difference? Okay. That's a a significant thing. So I read this... uh, I read this article this past week. You know, they're doing lots of surveys of Christians and then particularly of uh, Christian clergy or, or just clergy uh, coming out of COVID. And the percentage that I read, I mean, it was I was thinking, golly, who are they talking to? Um, it was something like 30% of clergy believe that the way that you get to heaven is by working for it. And I'm thinking, wow, that's like, if that's the messaging that's coming across in their churches and people are hearing it, then that's what that's what informs people's belief about what it means to be a righteous person is all about your works. It's all about what you do. And we would say, yeah, works are important, but it's on the back end of faith. It's not on the front end. It's not like you say, well, that's how I get to heaven. It's more about 
now that I'm going there and I have a place there, that how's that going to inform my life? I'm going to live my life as a forgiven person, as a person who's going to uh, spend eternity with him, knowing uh, that I am with him. So that's a that's a huge difference. Well, let's take a look at a little note here that in terms of of the Lord being merciful, that's right in the middle of the page or on page 86. Hearkening back to Abraham's negotiation with Yahweh, that's the Lord, over the possibility of not destroying the righteous with the wicked, God is merciful, offering the righteous a way out, but not in eliminating the existence of temptation. You know, one of the things that can happen in terms of the immaturity of faith not not just uh, not the maturity so much. I, I think over time you sort of learn what the maturity version of this is. But but sometimes when we're immature in our faith or new to our faith, we think that God's mercy should result in the elimination of evil, the elimination of temptation, as if somehow, well, if God really loved us, he would just take away all the evil in the world all the evil people, all the evil actions, and we would have this utopian society that we could live in where everybody loves each other and sings kumbaya, and we just pray and we hold hands. That's the world that a lot of people today, particularly young people, are wanting. And I think part of it is because they feel totally, um, or at least uh, significantly, unequipped spiritually to handle temptation. What do you do with the presence of evil in the face of the fact that you we have a God that says, I love you, and I, it's unconditional, and I'm being merciful, and all those things. If he really loves us, then why doesn't he take away all the bad things? And what's interesting here is that what we see here is that he offers Lot and his family, the righteous, so to speak, a way out, but not by eliminating evil. When Lot and his family left... Yeah, they destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, it, that didn't like that was the only place where evil existed. They went to Zoar, we'll see. Well, Zoar was just the same as Sodom and Gomorrah, but the difference was was that God extended his mercy and grace to that community because that's where Lot was going to go, not because they were such great people. So it reminds me of 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. Where Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can what? Endure it. Notice he says when. He doesn't say if, maybe. When means what? That's the reality of our life in this world, right? The reality of our life in this world is that there is evil. And we contribute to it. But the promise that he gives is that when we're tempted, he will do what? Provide a way out. Now, sometimes the way out is literally like it was for Lot and his family. Escape, leave, get get away. But sometimes you're stuck where you're at. And if you're stuck where you're at, then what, what I mean, how how can you get through it? God's help and the support of other people. But Lot said, verse 18, no, my lords, please, your servant has, I'm, I'm, I'm liking Lot less and less as we go through this story, okay? But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes. Boy, was he mistaken. And you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. 
I'm disgusted right at this moment. <laughs> the disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. I've lost all respect for Lot now by this time. Okay, so what's Lot's deal? What's his deal? <laughs> He's still trying to keep things convenient for himself, isn't he? Even in the face of impending doom, right? Everything is going to get creamed and wiped out and killed and everything. And he's thinking, I can't run that far. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that just slipped out. (laughs) He wants to be still in control of the situation, does he not? And that does hearken all the way back to when there was the opportunity for him to go to Canaan or go to Sodom. He thought, you know what, it's a whole lot easier in Sodom because I don't have to take any rocks out of the soil. It's already tilled, it's already irrigated, it's, oh boy, everything's looking good. It's a whole lot easier for me if I go that way than if I go that way. And so now it comes back to bite him. And so we still don't see the maturity on his part that we would love to see that Lot is someone who can learn from his mistakes. He is not learning from his mistakes. Have you ever known anyone like that that didn't learn from their mistakes? I won't ask if any of you are those people, right? Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, that one. I guess we can, maybe we look at him as a tragic figure. Maybe that's one way that we can have some empathy for him, right? And that's about the only way. So, verse 21. So he said to him, that's the Lord. Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. Another act of mercy, is it not? See, the timing of it is also part of the mercy of God. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord uh, out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain destroying all those living in the cities and what? Also the vegetation of the land. So now it's uninhabitable. I mean, talk about total devastation on an area. But Lot's wife looked back and she what became? Was Lot's wife from Sodom? Yes. See, it was hard for her. It was hard. The sons-in-law, they stayed. See, oh, this is big joke. And then Lot's wife, it was hard for her to let go. Yeah. No, those were the sons-in-law. Right. Okay. But they were planning the wedding. And and so maybe they had spent a lot of money on that already. I don't know. I don't know. But, 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 I mean, let's have a little empathy for her. Imagine leaving everything you've known on the word of something, a god. And then when you're leaving, you see the thing is really happening. And even though the Lord's angel said, don't look back, that's what she did. Well, it could be, but, you know, there's a little bit of that. I can't believe it, and I'm yearning and all that kind of thing. Yeah, Joseph. Um, Is there any significance to the pillar of salt, like why salt? 
Why salt? Well, she kind of did, but yeah. Yeah, so um, I don't know, you know, uh, and some people look at this and say that's a myth. That was a symbol of, you know, death or whatever. They, modern scholars run rampant over stories like this and just say, well, that was just a mythology, okay? But whatever became of that then, anybody know whatever be, what they think happened with the, uh, the ruins of whatever might have been left? Did anybody know? Dead Sea. Dead Sea, yeah. They think that that underneath the water of the Dead Sea, which is a salty deal, that that's where this all is. Okay, isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Remember when they had the negotiation. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land on the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God, dis- and here can't, here's the phrase, okay? So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he what? Remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. So Lot benefited from the promise that had been made to Abraham, okay? And so that, you know, that I, in some ways that could be a reassuring thing when you think about your faith and the benefit that your faith or the fact that you have faith might in fact be to the generations of people that follow you. You think about that? That the people that follow you or the people that are in your periphery, that they might in fact be benefiting from the blessings that come to you or through you by virtue of your faith. Not that your faith saves them, because that's all about you know individual faith. But it's the idea that maybe your family is blessed because of your faith. Maybe this neighborhood where our church is located is blessed because of our faith. It's not because of our faith, I guess. I, I guess what it is is because God remembers us and then extends the blessings out. You know, that might be something to kind of think a little bit about. So he remembers Abraham. Now, God remembers. That's often a phrase in the Bible, the word remember. So why would God need to? I need to remember things because I often forget things. And then the people in my life say, now, don't forget. Okay. Now, in my family, um, when I need to remember stuff, I get a text. Okay. And if I need to remember something, I text myself. So that's, okay, that's how we do it. But why would God need that? God doesn't forget stuff. God knows everything. Why does God need to remember? What does remember mean? Uh, maybe it's like honoring. Um, like I know my, my parents always say, you know, remember your parents and honor your parents. So I don't know that it's necessarily the opposite of forgetting, mm-hmm. but it's maybe just being solid about what you promise. So in the communion liturgy, we say, do this in remembrance of me. Okay? So Like the interaction of us coming back. It, see, it means more than a sort of tie a, finger, a tie a string around your finger to remember something. What, the word remember is real interesting in the, in the Bible because one of the great meanings of it is, is that I live in the present blessing of 
gifts that were given in the past. So it's connecting my present to the past where I want to remember the past. I want to remember what Jesus did for me. I want to remember all those things. But it's not like, oh, let's just have a memory party and we'll remember what he did for us. It isn't that. It's we're, we're living in the present blessing of what happened. And that blessing is continuing because of what happened. And that's what is happening here. God remembered the promise that he made to Abraham, but he's saying, Lot and Abraham, but Lot especially, you are living in the present blessing of what I said long ago to Abraham and what I did for Abraham. Isn't that cool? Isn't that great? See, because then it's not, oh, that, oh, uh, God better remember because he might forget. That isn't what it is. It's it's a re reliving of and a re-blessing of. Yeah, Joseph. Uh, I also kind of see it as being sort of a rhetorical storytelling device. And Moses was telling the Israelite people, you're sharing this story to the people, saying, what's God like? You're going to emphasize that point. You know God remembers. <laughs> if you're telling a story, you're going to say, God remembered. No, God remembered. As we were reminding people, this story is about how God never forgets. God never forgets. I'm glad you finally ended with that part there, Joseph. That was good. Okay, one more thought. Marv? You alluded to community. Yeah. And every month when we have communion, yes, we want to remember. But to me, it's more of our reaffirming what we need to remember what Jesus did for us. Yeah. But it's not just, we're, we're not just taking it because, oh, now I well, won't forget. Yeah, but yeah, that's a good word, too, or revalidation in some way. Okay, very good. All right, guess what? We are at the end of our lesson for today. Isn't that amazing? We actually got through it. Yeah, That's a miracle. All right, well, let's, uh, let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for the way that your word speaks to us. Yes, these things happened so long ago, but any of us here today probably can say, there are some parallels in terms of what we see in our world today. But the great parallel is that you are the constant. And the constant that you are is that you love us unconditionally, that you exercise that love in the form of mercy, and that the mercy really is the covering that each of us needs as we go on about our lives in the coming week. So, Lord, as you have been merciful to us, help us to be merciful to each other and to people in the world who desperately need the, uh, the hope that you offer uh, through your Son. So watch over us this week, dear Lord. Be with us until we're together again. And we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.